It is with profound gratitude we have Tom McGuane's presence on our podcast today. He is one of America's literary giants who has won numerous awards for his vast spectrum of writing. His two of many books, 92 in the Shade and The Longest Silence, have had an indelible impact on his angling audience. He is in three Hall of Fames, the International Game Fish Association, the American Academy of Arts and Letters, and the Cutting Horse Hall of Fame. Today we talk about his legendary life he's led, from the Florida Keys to Montana, and everywhere in between. We broke everything. We broke lines. We broke hooks. We broke rods. We broke our minds. We broke marriages. We broke the whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls, and whoever had the biggest pair of panties won the pot. I knocked another arrow, and he turned around the other way, and I shot him going through the other way. So I double-lunged him both ways. But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut. I got him on. All right, now we're going to teach him a lesson. I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet. And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out, thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, wow, what a ride. (laughs) There's something fishy going on here. Tom McGuane, thank you so much for joining us. I'm glad. Uh, we've been friends for a while, yep. mostly distance friends, but we've yep. got a lot in common. Uh, your life is su- such a big spectrum, so vast with the writing and the, the horsemanship and the fishing. Um, you know, We'll cover a lot of that today, if you don't mind. And I've, I've got to start out by saying your 22-mile driveway from Livingston <laughs> is a great diffuser from yeah. the rest of the world. Yeah, it is. It's a wonderful home you have here, and you say it's like 100 years old? Uh, it'll be 120. Uh, 120, that's right, turn year. of the century. Yeah. So uh, it was homesteaded. There, a lot of the homesteaders in this valley were English. And uh, one of my neighbors has an old crumbled his, uh, pioneer cabin on it, and... The guy who lived in it, by report, was a really disagreeable guy who'd kind of shoot at you if you get any near him. But he was also an Englishman. And his brother was a successful businessman back in England. And he would take the boat to the United States and take the train to Montana uh, just to fish the boulder for a month every year and then ship all the way back wow. to, to England. Yeah. How did the notoriety of the boulder get to England? Uh, I, you know, I don't know, but it was, you know, it was the homestead era. And I think that, uh, the word was out and good places to go or places that had already been used up or where there was no timber to build things with. And, uh, I think there was a coconut telegraph that was pretty significant, significant. Yeah. Yeah. They they all seem to know about it. Well, you're in three hall of fames, the American Academy of Arts and Letters, National Cutting Horse Association Members Hall of Fame and the International Game Fish Association Hall of Fame. Um, that's a pretty big body of work. 
How did you stretch yourself so thin but stay so vibrant in each of them? Well, let's hope that I did, but I was, it's one of the things that's been a sort of a counter pressure in, in my life. I mean, I think I started to tell you my, my dad was always lecturing me about being interested in too many things. Uh, but my core passion has always been fishing and it's always been literature. Uh, and I think part of that is, uh, my dad imposed on me. My dad was a fly fisherman. My grandfather was a fly fisherman. And they were, uh, they were not socially elite people. My grandfather worked for the railroad, and my my dad grew up as a railroader's kid. Uh, but he went to Harvard on a athletic scholarship, and Harvard was just down the road from where he lived. Um, so uh, that was something we did. And when I was like. 12 my grandfather gave me a 20 gauge model 12 and then when i was 16 he gave me a 12 gauge model 12. Um, and so that was kind of the dna that i started out with but i i'm just uh, a little bit like you i mean you've ridden motorcycles and you're a renowned skier and you're a renowned fisherman you you're what are you asking me this for you're as bad as i am <laughs> i don't know why i'm so a little late to twig to that maybe but. a little add you <laughs> yeah. know you get bored part quickly and run to the other you know well, i was a seasonal guy too you know i skied in the winter and fished in the summer and then Eventually, I found tarpon fishing, and so that opened up a whole new world. Yeah, exactly. And and you know what is the bottom of, bottom line in this? Some people just enjoy learning things. Um, uh, and, and, and trying to be great at those things. Yeah. Because you were very, very serious at everything you did. And I think a lot of your counterparts in Key West at one point, they were all amazed at how serious you were. But your dad, you were saying that I read, he was he was a very angry man. Yeah, he was pretty. Uh, alcoholic. Um, and you did not like authority. Yeah, that's true. So you rebelled at a young age. Yeah. Do you still rebel? Not significantly. I think I, you know... I've been uh, happy for a long time. <laughs> I think I think Harrison said ever since you stopped drinking in the eighties, you became happier and happier. Yeah, I definitely needed to do that. I tell people that uh, uh, that uh, I quit drinking to universal acclaim. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think the thing I, that I went down and I, I had this episode. I was I took a, a horse to the national fraternity and. I went to Jimmy Gersio. Do you know Jimmy Gersio? I don't. You know, anyway, I went to his house one time. We were all sitting up and drinking and doing bad things. And I was driving back, back down I-35 in Texas. And uh, I pulled off and go into this sort of bucket of blood cowboy bar. And a big fight broke out in there. I felt somebody grab me from behind. And I turned around and popped him one. It was a cop. So... By nightfall, I was in jail in Denton, Texas, and Laurie called up and said, you need to get the plug in the jug. And uh, that was sort of my last hurrah. But also, too, I read where um, your wife's brother's father, uh, um, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, J.D. Yeah, J.D., Jimmy Buffett's father, right. your wife's uh, dad. I think it was a New Year's Eve or morning. Yeah. You woke up, had a Bloody Mary, and you were instantly drunk, and you were thinking, 
boy, I'm drunk again. JD said, I got to stop smoking. You threw a cigarette pack out the front door and you stopped drinking. It was a, a whole a carton of cigarettes. And he loved his lucky strikes. And I said, I said, you're through smoking and I'm through drinking. So that was he it. He never smoked again. I never had another drink. Wow. It was, was it easy for you? Once you decided that you were tired of it? Uh, I think I, I think I recognized pretty quickly what a less stressful life it was. Right. Um, I definitely had uh, some of the traits of alcoholism, which were personality change, and mm-hmm. I, I mean, I got into a lot of scrapes, and um, but I don't think I had the addictive part of it very deeply. Right. Uh, either I'm happy to have either one of them define alcoholism. Right. But uh, once I decided I wasn't going to do it anymore, you know, I would I kind of kept track of it. I said, okay, well, let's having five drinks at night, have two, and then have one. And so I was like, I kind of tapered off for a couple of weeks or something mm-hmm. like that. But the big thing that I noticed is I'd lost a lot of my uh, social nimbleness, you know, because I'd really been relying on that to, to be a sociable person. I think right. in many ways, I'm, I'm not a very sociable person. Um, uh, so that kind of emotional crutch was something I missed. Uh, right. But uh, I'm just glad I got through all that and nobody nice shot me. Yeah, you said uh, why I'm around and no one else is. The detonator, the detonator didn't go off, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think this go back a little bit. Um, also, too, uh, you're Irish Catholic, and mm-hmm. I think that you first learned about significant conversations and storytelling was uh, brought to you by your mother, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, she, my, my, all my Irish, Irish uncles and stuff like that. Uh, you know, I had a, uh, a very humorous family. You know, my my Uncle Bill, who was a great guy. Uh, I really kind of worshipped my Uncle Bill. He was a judge in Fall River, Massachusetts. And it was very much that locked up Irish Catholic world, you know. I saw probably the last of it, I guess, in the 50s and 60s. But to give you an example, my Uncle Bill got a scholarship to go to Brown. And uh, when he was getting ready to go, the Catholic priest came around and said, you don't go to Brown. It's a Protestant school. So he ended up going to Boston College, but then he went to Harvard Law School, graduated the top of his class, and he was a great guy, but great guy. But he had a great sense of humor. I'll tell you, give you a quick example of it. He had these, he had these kids in college kids in for doing a panty raid. You remember panty raids? I think yeah, they've sure. gone out of style. So he said, uh, um, he gave them his credit card when he was sentencing him. And he said, I want you to go to Philly's department store in Boston and exhaust your interest in ladies' underwear (laughs) and come back next week and report to the court about your experience. (laughs) So that was was kind of the way people kind of thought my family. He used to say you should, don't ever leave a room with a group of people unless everybody's laughing. Just, you know, that's kind of your duty in life. And that... I lived in Ireland one year, and that was very much part of the culture, you know, talking and laughing. And a lot of those people didn't have a pot to piss in, but they right. had this rich verbal life. Um, and uh, so I, my mother was that way. My mother's very funny. 
Did uh, she inspire you to write? I know she did, you know, yes. as far as reading was concerned. Yeah, she did. She was, she, my dad had such a grim, uh, uh, early years, you know, growing up and kind of, it was the, the heart of the depression. Right. Because you were born in 39. Yeah, my dad was born in 1910. Um, he was living in the town, which was the epicenter of the of the 1918 flu epidemic. He helped my his father bury bodies of young servicemen, wow. stack them. They were piling them up, and um, so his worldview was tempered by the fact: if you slip in life, you'll end up in Skid Row. And um, uh, so he, he was both he was a workaholic. Uh, he was, an, most of his adult life, he was an alcoholic, but he never drank in the daytime and he never missed a day's work in 40 years. So he had a grim worldview. My mother was a renowned beauty um, and she was a baby of the family and she she was a, a, a free spirit in many ways. Um, so you gravitated more towards. Her well, she was style. a real reader, and she, you know, she'd write fan letters to Saul Bellow and stuff like that. So, but they both were engulfed sooner or later right. by, by alcoholism, and then they kind of. You always feel like you're on a dock, and your mother and father are on a small ship, and they're going out Not to, to see, sea and over the horizon. Where'd they go? Right. Yeah. Right. Um. As a young man, I think I felt that similar experience where Did I didn't like authority. I didn't do well in school. I, I just either. wanted to do what I wanted to do. I wanted to go fast, uh, ski with my hair on fire, and in the summer chase fish and race motorcycles and play baseball and all that good stuff. Um, my mom was very nurturing, and I feel like you may have had that same experience. Yeah, your good. mom nurtured you, and your yeah. dad was... A disciplinarian. Yeah. How did he discipline you? Well, was he spanking. Was, no, I, I don't. I never had any of that. I never had any kind of physical discipline. But he had a very, very sharp tongue. Tongue, and um, uh, he was very articulate. Been an English major, and, uh, read everything, and you know he could really tear you up in a couple of sentences if he wanted to, and. Um, it was a highly evolved. I mean, I, I, there were a lot of things I really loved about him, but we had a kind of, uh, kind of um, com competitive kind of relationship. You know, he had wanted to be a writer at one point when he was school, just not practical uh, in his day and age. And then as I became one, I think he resented it. You know, right. I remember when he came to visit me in Montana. He said, "This is the kind of place." people live when the rest of the world has done all the work <laughs> i mean he just said anybody having fun kind of annoyed him right <laughs> that's sad it is sad uh but i remember i remember uh when i was young and we fished a lot together when, we, when i was young and i remember uh i saw an ad for hart schaffner and mark's suits it was like in the f middle 50s or something it said for the man who would like to would like to look for the man who would like to make ten thousand dollars a year before he's thirty. This is the suit for you, okay? 
So I, th I thought, oh, this is great. I'll tell, I tell my dad, why don't you figure out how to make $10,000 a year? And then the next year, make it in 11 months. We'll fish all that free month. And we'll keep doing it until we, that's enough, that's enough money. Uh, we'll just fish with every month you sail, save from this calendar. <laughs> so he looked at me with contempt and he said, anybody who thought like that would never make $10,000 in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> I know. So that was kind of our adversarial kind of a thing. But Did it drive you to write? Uh, or or to be the serious writer you became? Well, or, or did you have that kind of seriousness because of maybe possibly feel, fail, uh, fear of failure? Well, I had a lot of that. Uh, that really never goes away. Because you had, initially, I think your dad never really wanted you to be a writer, if I'm not mistaken. I, he thought it was pretty far-fetched, you right. know. Um, uh, but I've I got to wind back for just a sec. I remember one time I was fishing with Harry Snow, Right. Um, and my Uncle Ben, so-called, came down and he invited me to go fishing. By that time, I was in the Lower Keys. And uh, he hired Harry Snow and we went bone fishing. So I was talking to him. And he was a very close friend of my dad's, um, both sporting guys. And uh, I said to Uncle Ben, I said, Uncle Ben, was my dad a great fisherman? And he said, no, Tommy, he wasn't. He said, but nobody ever loved it more. And that's always been a divider for me, you know, about what's important in fishing, you know, um, you know, whether you're successful or whether you just love it or, you know, in terms of what you're getting out of it. And I've, I've played both sides of that. Sure. You know? um, uh, but at this age, I'm much more interested in what I see and what I'm getting out of it in a kind of a uh, slightly more cerebral way. Right. You know, talking about age, I mean, you're recovering from a knee operate or knee replacement, two shoulder replacements yeah. in the last year or so. Yeah. Uh, bro, you know, your body is... It's an old body. As, that's, they, they're not re as resilient as they once were. No. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm happy to have all my marbles because my great passion in life is writing in right. literature <clears throat> and i seem to be still be a player in that sense but fishing has been so important to me i like love to bird hunt but nothing has been as important to me as fishing and um so as i get old and, and get more decrepit you know I, I start looking at my hole cards what kind of what kind of fishing can i do i'm not right. going to be a deep wader um uh, there are lots, you know, I've been a steel hitter for 40 or 50 years, you know, that, so, you know, always by myself. Um, some of that's kind of dangerous, you know, you're getting sure. in bad places. A trail that I go, go down all the time to get to the Bulkley River. I go walking through grizzly tracks all the way down, all the way back up. Right. And, um, so I look at it now from trying to think, what can I do, you know? Right. And so my... I've always been a very good caster. And so I'm trying to say I just ha can't let that go. Even with the new shoulder, I've got to just stay with it because I always want to be able to stand on the bow of a boat and go tarpon fishing or bone fishing or permit fishing. If I can do that, I'm happy to give up some other things. For sure. Yeah. Because you're still in the game. 
still in the game. Well, you talk about fishing and how that's changed. How about your writing? How has that changed with being 80, going on 83 now versus your earlier years when you were, you know, writing all these great books and you're still writing? You just have a, a book that just came came out. Yeah. Um, what is it called? Uh, half. Cloudburst, is that what No, I read that last year. What's your new book that you just came out with? I think I haven't published anything since Cloudburst. Oh, you haven't? Okay. Yeah. I, I, I thought I just saw something that you had written. Maybe it was a short article or I something that Huey's talking I'm, about. I'm not losing my memory. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, but is your writing still as prolific? Keep half, mm -mm. leave half, or keep... Yeah, keep half, leave half. Oh, that's the story in The New Yorker. Yes. Yeah. The recent story you just wrote. Yeah. Um, so and I, and a lot of people think it's the best story I ever wrote. And I've been writing stories for, I mean, my my first book's been in print for over a half century. So I've been, And that was Sporting Club. Yeah. Writing was a lot easier then. A lot easier than it is now. Partly because, like anything else, uh, you develop criteria about what you're doing. So, you know, what, you know I, I wouldn't want to read my early stuff now. Just fear that I'd want to correct everything I saw, you know. Um, but I think that that's just the natural progression of, yeah, of of excellence. I well, it is because it, it's a relative thing, yeah. you know, where what you wrote, once wrote was a classic, like ninety two in the shade, mm -hmm. you know, uh, great acclaim. Can you write that well today? I uh, I couldn't write in that 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 kind of uh, freewheeling. Uh, in some cases, hard to understand. I understand it, but I don't care if anybody else does. I've lived in Montana for so long and I've had a ranch for so long. I've always tried to write things that people who work for me could understand. Right. <laughs> Instead of just the insider Illuminati group that were used to reading each of the stuff and kind of lived in that kind of uh, bubble that still exists in some parts of the world. Brooklyn, New York is just full of people writing for each other. Some of them very good writers. Right. Uh, but I've gotten more interested over the years in being kind of accessible. Um, that said, I'm, I, I'm a weirdo. I know that I am. <laughs> a great weirdo. Well, well I, I think, too, being somewhat eccentric makes that genius more vibrant. It does. I mean, I always think about uh, the way jazz musicians work, you know, which is basically they're not really sure where they're going to go. Right. And if I knew where I was going to go, and when I started a novel, I would abandon it. You know, It'd be boring. It'd be, I couldn't do it. Right. The other thing that interests me is uh, trying to see if I can get something to catch fire and then to follow it. Interesting. Yeah. Do you remember the first thing that you ever wrote that was really exciting to you? And you thought, possibly, this is what I want to do? Well, that's a great question. I always wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be a writer when I was 12. Why? I, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I I just I I'm not sure I know why it was something I always wanted to do. I think part of it was just affectation, you know. I can remember I had this, I had this book, Rameau's nephew, a paper one of the early quality paperbacks, Rameau's nephew, written by the French writer Diderot, and I would carry it around in my back my jeans back pocket. 
uh, and girls would ask me about it. Uh, I wore it out, but I never read it. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. So part of me, I like the idea of being a writer more than doing the work. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, we had those great examples around then, like like Hemingway, who had these vivid lives, and even the ones whose lives weren't so vivid were so romantic to me, like Faulkner and Steinbeck and all these people working. The whole literary world has changed a lot, but in the the fifties, writers were gods. I right, mean, they really were. Because uh, I want to get into Key West and all your buddies that were down there, but I think you know, talking about Hemingway, I think your father at one point was a little irritated with your writing, and he asked you, "Who do you think you are, Hemingway?" Yeah, and you said, "No, I'm better." <laughs> I know. What could I do? <laughs> tell tell me like, about that story. Well, it's. It's like I had a parallel conversation with my doctor in, in Boca Grande. He said, he said, uh, just before I turned 80, he said, you know, in this ominous way, he said, you're about to turn 80. I said, I don't worry about it because I'm going to, I'm going to get to a hundred. Well, I don't think I am going to get to a hundred, but I just, I, you know, it's like a poker. If you're going to raise them, raise them out of their chair. <laughs> <laughs> you definitely raise your father out of his chair. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if you take a look at the guys that, you know, it was like the breakfast club, if you will, um, down in Key West. And, you know, I'm going to kind of jump around with the fishing and the writing in Key West because uh, I, that's the way I think. Uh, I go in different directions. Yeah, me too. As, as did your happy, life. Happy with that. Yeah. Um, but here you are with Jim Harrison, yep. Russell Chatham, Guy Valdine, Kurt Brannigan, Jimmy Buffett, Hunter Thompson. Yeah. All writers. Yeah. All aspiring writers. Right. And you all became tremendously successful. You were geniuses all caught on an island. Yeah. Um, How did you first get to Key West? I mean, I know that Jerry Jeff Walker was was with Murphy and Buffett got together with Jerry Jeff. He brought Buffett down there. Uh, You got there. Uh, The fishing was there. The chaos, you know, you know, went on for almost like a decade. But talk about your friends that were there, you know, well, the Harrisons and the Chathams. I I was always just passionate about geography, places I wanted to live. You know, there's a thing in Thoreau's Walden where he said, it, there's a certain time in your life when you look at the entire planet as a possible home site. <laughs> and I'm sure you remember that feeling. That, that's a free spirit for you. Yeah. But that's... And yeah. So... I I think I did two things for my generation, which is I sort of discovered Key West and I discovered Livingston, Montana. And those two things were just based on fishing. Because when I was at uh, when I was at Stanford, I would read that Field and Stream who, contest winners every year. Do you, I don't even know if they have that anymore. Yeah, I remember the old Field and Stream magazines. Yeah. And anyway, look at it. I'd say, okay, who won the tarpon tournament? It would say Big Pine Key, Florida. Oh wow, who won the permit tur- tournament? Somebody else, Big Pine Key, Florida. Just said it over and over again. I said to my, I was in graduate school in California. I said I got to get there, and um, so I went down there. And then Jim Harrison and I had been classmates in college, and Jim kind of followed me down there. He, you know, he never really moved there, but he came down to visit long visits and right. so on. Uh, I didn't know Jimmy at that time. I met him, I think, the day he got there. He came down with Jerry Jeff. Um, and then the same thing happened in Livingston. You know, and Hunter Thompson came down. 
Hunter had a great nose for news. You know, he's felt there's something happening down there. Right. I've got to be there. The pulse. Yeah. It's a, I remember being with Hunter in the hotel he was staying in, and and uh, Jan Winter had just uh, discovered the fax machine. And, and so Hunter decided this was going to rob him of all his freedom. You know, if you finish something, you just put it in this machine, and uh, it'll be in the Rolling Stone office, you know, in 10 minutes or one minute. And he said, he's going, this is going to ruin us. You know, we'll never get anywhere with this kind of shit going on. We've got to fight back. So, <laughs> so, so he calls Winter up and he said, okay, I finished the piece. I'm going to send it to you now in this machine. And he'd had me tear the piece all up into little strips. And uh, so Winter said, okay, transmit. And so I just fed all this trash into the machine and Winter's hollering on the other line. I can't read any of this. What is this stuff? <laughs> and uh, uh, so Hunter gets back and he says, well, that's enough for me with, your, uh, with you and your technology. I got to deal with this shit. I'm, I'm out of here. Don't ever send any of these fucking things to me my house again. It's useless. It takes up room and I'm not going to use it. <laughs> so, so, so Hunter came down and, you know, he was a funny combination of things, which was he did a tremendous amount of drugs, any drugs. I mean, he came to visit my, the Buffets one time. He was there, and he ate all my father-in-law's heart medicine. <laughs> <laughs> and, just to see what the, it was going to do to him. Yeah, just to see what would happen. And there was a guy, Buffett wrote about him, Parvet Licks at 40. He would have a jar of various pharmaceuticals, you know, big jar, and he'd say, I've worked this out carefully on paper. Any four, you do any four of these and it won't kill you. I don't know what it's going to do to you, but you could survive four. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, it was crazy times. But anyway, but the other part of Hunter that was interesting is he was kind of a fitness buff. I mean, he'd just go on these these drug benders and then the next morning he'd be swimming laps, you know, every time. Um, And he had, he was, had a sort of a, 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 dual personality right. that only another writer would recognize in that he was a very serious writer and he was a very knowledgeable person about literature and so you know when he when you he would recognize you weren't buying into his gonzo stuff then he would sort of settle down and get serious and, and we talk normal. about things and and he would be do you, I, you know I almost feel sorry for him because I think with his image his image preceded him and in in public, he had to live that that image. Yeah, he did. That he portrayed. Yeah. And he would get high and get stoned and get all messed up just Killed because him. that's who Killed he was him. supposed to be. Yeah. I can't imagine living a life like that. No. And and I, I hate to bring in my ex wife, but Chris Everett, the tennis player, was known as the Ice Maiden. Yeah. And she hated that image. Yeah. Um. And she felt she hated his image. Well, I, you know, she, my ex-wife hated her image as the Ice Maiden. Oh, and, I see. You know, similar to uh, to Hunter Thompson, that he had to live that image sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And she I had to it. portray that image wherever she went because she had an image and he had that image. And in yeah. public, he felt like he had to portray that image, if I'm not mistaken. I think that's right. And um, I have a couple of vivid memories. One time we were, I was in Aspen for Buffett's wedding. And uh, so we were all just, you know, they had 
we were just all gone. I mean, we were just, by the time the wedding came around, I mean, there wasn't anything left of us. <laughs> and uh, I remember uh, we were at the bachelor's party and they they wheel in this naked girl on a sort of a, you know, whipped cream or something. And then she's like that. She's obviously terrified. And uh, <laughs> we're all like, we could give a shit less. <laughs> and they wheel her in and this friend of ours, Tom Corcoran, says, leans over the, this display and he says to her honey you're gonna love high school <laughs> <laughs> oh god well you bring up tom corcoran he was uh he was one of the main characters you know in key west at yep. the time he was a bartender yep. at the chart house tell me about you know the chart house in general i mean that was really uh, a place where you all gravitated to it, it was that's where i met laurie but before i get to that yeah um so we're Slouched around in front of my Scott Palmer and Lori and I and somebody else. And Hunter's wife uh, is on the couch. And I, she's just being very seductive. And everybody's going, please stop. And she's doing this. So, so finally, she just gave up. And uh, and Hunter comes walking in. He says, no more run wife. We're not doing run wife anymore. <laughs> and so he leads her out. And then I went to the window of this hotel and I looked down and she's just whipping him on the head and he's going like this, going out to his car. <laughs> and I thought he's back to reality. Oh, God. What do you love most about Hunter? Uh, well, uh, he was a much more sensitive person than he let anybody find out. And... Um, at one point, he, my son was his bodyguard when he was going around giving these lectures. You know, we put a bottle of wild turkey on the lectern, a forty-four Magnum, and then my son was supposed to fight back all the pissed-off people. Um, I liked him. Be, I liked him because he was so stimulating mentally, right? And because the the embedded hunter before he became celebrity crazed and all those other things uh, was a. Uh, a serious, serious artist. Right. Do you think that uh, his demise was uh, forecasted and possibly emulated Hemingway's when Hemingway committed suicide? I, I, I never thought of that. I just think that, you know, we've both seen it at some point or another, the, the deep depression that follows long substance abuse right. becomes unbearable. Right, because I know he designed the peyote fist cannon um, that Johnny Depp paid for to be his ashes to be shot oh, in yeah, the right. sky. You know, he designed that I think on paper well before he killed himself. Yeah. Oh, really? Just like Brodigan brought me his urn. He said, "Somebody will call you for this." And I said, "What's this for?" He said, "I just want you to store the urn." And that was Thompson's urn of ashes. It was what? Was it Thompson's Urn of Ashes? Brodigan brought yeah. you, or was it Thompson's? No, no, no. This was uh, Brodigan for his Bro own ashes. He, went, oh, he said, for somebody his will own. call you for this. Okay. I said, I don't know what he's talking about. He left his fly rod. And then not long after, somebody said, sent for the urn. He had just killed himself. Oh. Yeah. Wow. But, uh, yeah, I think it was kind of. A, I think that what Hunter brought upon himself, which was this 
uh, Gonzo super champ, you know, right. was sufficiently at odds with who he really was that um, uh, the it was schizophrenia, really. It was just almost schizophrenia. And I'd been reading him forever. I mean, when my first son was born and my wife was in the, my then wife was in the hospital recuperating, I brought her Hunter Thompson's Hell's Angels to read in the hospital. I remember because the nurses were shocked. You know, this is a new mother. You're bringing, and uh, but he was always uh, w one of the ways he dramatized his nonfiction was to step into dangerous waters. Um, and some of it, sort of the great, great shark hunt and some of that stuff's just sort of silly, but right. but the Hell's Angel stuff was in earnest and it was dangerous. And, right, and, uh, and he was there. Yeah. Um, let's talk about your good friend, Jim Harrison, mm -hmm. great writer. Yep. Tell us about, uh, you know, his life with you in, the, in, in Key West, but also to, you know, over the lifetime that you guys had as friends, the letter writing exchange yeah. that you guys had. We were, yeah, we wrote letters at least once a week for at least 40 years big uh, letters or hmm? notes what's that big letters yeah he you know typed out or he never learned to type so they're all written written out um but we were friends in college and we were uh fishing friends you know we would go up and fish the jordan and the black and the pier marquette and stuff like that and he was very hard living, even a young guy. And I mean, I had a hard time keeping up with basically a tough little Swede and he could absorb all this body punishment. But we'd, we'd close all the bars in Northern Michigan at two o'clock in the morning. And then we'd go out to some river and wait for the sun to come up. And, uh, you know, we did that a lot, you know, but it didn't bother him. It kind of bothered me. I didn't, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a young, young man's game right yeah, there. Yeah. And he would, it's a miracle that he lived to be 78. I mean, he was drinking a, half a bottle of whiskey when I knew him in college. Right. But you two guys wrote all these great novels and screenplays. Mm -hmm. um, what kind of a conversations, um, dialogue did you guys have in those early years about trying to get published? Yep. Screenwriting successfully, Legends of the Fall, you know, the movies that you had produced from your writing. Yeah. What was that like in the conversation of trying to make money? Where was the money? Writing screenplays. Was that more difficult? Easier? Easier. Way no, easier. Nonfiction, fiction. What yeah. was, uh, you know, how did you balance all that as a writer? Well, <clears throat> in the beginning, Jim helped me in a big way. And then I helped him in other ways. How did yeah. he help you in the big way? He found a publisher for my first book. And I was right on the edge of giving up. You know, I'd been writing for years and never published anything. And I wrote The Sporting Club and I sent it to him and I went down to Baja, California, sleeping on the beach. And um, uh, and the telegraph operator came down, found me on the beach, told me a book was published. That's how I found out about it. Wow. And uh, Jim was teaching at Stony Brook and he knew a lot of pretty high powered people there, including uh, a woman who was an editor at Simon and Schuster. I sent him the book. He loved it. He took it to her and she bought it. So uh, the book was uh, noticed, you know, and um, 
So suddenly things started coming my way. And one, one of them was Sports Illustrated wanted me to write for them. And Sports Illustrated was a very, uh, it was the editor-in-chief at Sports Illustrated was de Gaulle's uh, press, a press guy during World War II. Wow. And he was a very super smart, grim guy who loved literature. And so he had Faulkner writing for him. He had Steinbeck writing for him. And once he picked you to write for him, you could write about anything. He didn't care what you wrote about. Wow. So then I connected Jim to him, uh, to them, and Jim picked it up and he started writing. And it paid, by those standards, you know, it paid very well. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had a, my contract was for six pieces a year, whatever I wanted to do. And um, uh, it was almost a living wage and then Woody Sexton would let me take some of his clients that he didn't want to fish and I would kind of guide him around the elbow bank inside of loggerhead which was all I knew how to do <laughs> <laughs> but it was fish so full of fish there you'd go pull down here pull over here it took you <coughs> two hours and everybody got shots of bonefish permit sawfish were going under the boat crazy and then you go up and do it again that was my my trick <laughs> perfect Nikki so, and I do that today. Yeah. <laughs> every, yeah. every May, that's, that's how we but fish. But two days of that, plus my Sports Illustrated thing, was a, was a living, a minimal living income. Right. And then Sporting Club sold to the movies, and that was another little boost. I could kind of buy a house. And... Because I think your Sporting Club, that's the funds you bought this house in Livingston, this one here, or was it uh, another one? I bought a house. I just found that my notes that I made when I was buying the house south of Livingston at Deep Creek. So you bought that house and your place in Key West yeah, from that money from Sporting, uh, sporting the movies, Club. movies, yeah. yeah. And I paid, I just it was a beautiful house south of Livingston uh, on about 20 acres or something. It had an orchard, it had a year-round stream, it had a turn-of-the-century house that was well-kept up. It had outbuildings built by the homesteader who was a wounded Confederate veteran. Um, and I paid $14,000 for it. Wow. And the house I bought in Key West, I bought for uh, two houses with a little courtyard in between. I paid, I think that was $26,000. So I had two homes for $38,000. Crazy. And I had a, this old Land Rover with a four-cylinder engine. And I went back and forth between the Northern Rockies and the Keys. And Perfect. Noisy jalopy. Then I made more money, bought a Porsche. I really went went to Hollywood there briefly. <laughs> <laughs> you have to go to Hollywood. You're writing movies, scripts, yeah, and stuff like that. Yeah. You know? Um, tell, let's talk a little bit about, you know, those years in Key West. It was that one decade where I yeah. think everything was on fire. Right. Your brain, the fishing, right. and the parting. Right. You know, and I think... Um, you know, I think this book here, Mile Marker Zero, um, captures a lot of that. Some of it does. It's kind of uh, lurid, you know. Right. Uh, um, and I remember Tom Wolf reviewed it. There was, he said it was, he told the author, the author had family in Key West, and he told the author, you know, this is a, a biography or a book, he said, uh, written from 30,000 feet. He said, you don't know anything that's going on down there. You just got it all by report. Right. What was Ground Zero like? What was it? What was Ground Zero like in Key West during that decade? Well, it was, you know, 
all of us who were there during that time look back on it as just the best time we ever had in our lives. Part of it was, uh, if you like to fish, you know, I was never on, I was hardly ever on land. I mean, I just fished all the time. Right. And, um, there were beautiful, a lot of beautiful girls with incredibly shaky morals. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, there was, uh, the kind of, uh, the kind of um, exuberant company of people who were kind of on the edge of a breaking wave, you know, kind of a new era or a new generation. So we felt like we were... Uh, Invincible, possibly? Well, we, we just felt excited, you know, about right. everything you could do. I mean, we didn't... I don't think we felt invincible. We felt... We could do anything we really wanted to do. But I think, too, doesn't being in Key West lend to that? Yeah, in Key West then, I mean, uh, Duval Street was boarded up, you know. Uh, It was inexpensive. Um, The, uh, you know, you're right where the Gulf Stream is formed. Right. Um, And I I had a a friend I went to high school with who ran the uh, Key West uh, Psychological thing you know for the state and he had a one of the, he had hull number one aquasport number one uh, and we fished out of that lot you know out of uh, washerwomen shoals and american shoals and uh i think we got a got it down as far as the what is that light it had a big kingfish run anyway so we fished offshore a lot sure fly fishing and um and then flats, flats fishing, which was our passion, but nobody knew anything about it. I mean, you had some very good, respected guides that were down there, Arlen Leiby and uh, Harry Snow, whose father had been a guide. Harry's father's father was still kind of hanging in there, but he'd almost gone blind. Um, all the guides at that time were Keys natives. They were born and raised there. Harry, Harry Snow said that he always played softball at marathon out on A1A. And he said about every hour and a half, they'd have to get off the highway to let a car go through. That's crazy. Yeah. I can't even imagine what the ocean looked like. Oh, it was full of fish. And it was, the tarpon fishing was so stupid, easy, that we kind of turned off it a little bit. Um, Sports Illustrated would send these uh, uh editors and writers down to go down there McGuane will take you fishing and I would take him over do that little run through a mule and archer and go up that long bank that goes out towards Cottrell right and there was a tarpon like every 20 feet crazy the entire bank they were they were juvenile tarpon you know they're like 50 60 pound fish 40 to 60 pound fish and then out in that basin were bigger fish and I just wouldn't take them there they just gone to heaven because they kept catching fish and they didn't know how to fish and how often would you fish the Marquesas back then? Not often. It it's seemed too like far. a long way away. Yeah, you didn't need to go that far. Yeah. Well, it just seemed like such a long way. <laughs> I look back on it now because I went down and I fished. I'll try to think of his name in a minute. But uh, I fished down in the lower keys the last couple of years, and I hadn't been there in years. I was thunderstruck at how far everybody ran. I mean, I, I was living on Summerlin Key, and we hardly went anywhere. You know, I can yeah. remember the first time I got out to the contents. I was afraid, you know, they'd ask for my passport. <laughs> I, 
<laughs> I was sort of scared. And <clears throat> we had aluminum props, no cell phones. And, you know, you, you break down your host. You break down, you you got a problem. Right. And and you, you couldn't. Uh, you couldn't call anybody. I, I would get these consignment engines from Evandrude because I was writing and guiding a little bit. Sure. And uh, I would get these consignment engines. You couldn't get a year out of an engine. I mean, they just, they were. So you never knew where you were going to be when they stopped. Yeah. Yeah. That would make you run a little bit closer to home for yeah. sure. So no cell phones, no GPS. And then those Carl heads going west out of the lower keys i mean yeah i mean it really pucker your little fanny running yeah, against sure. the light in the morning yeah for sure i mean i no i don't like that either no. i really don't like that either um but i think too that was a generation of the sexual revolution it was during the rebellion against vietnam and nixon yeah so there was a lot going on Mm -hmm. Marijuana was be, was being smoked. Drugs were all of a sudden being, you know, uh, more accessible. Um, so ninety two in the shade really expressed a lot of that 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 great generation. And I think somewhere I read too that that book almost represented in a fishing form that the country was going through at the time. Yeah. Well, the opening line I can more or less quote it was. Nobody knows from sea to shining sea why we're why we're having all this trouble with our republic. And uh, I remember one time I met Ken Casey. Remember Ken sure. Casey? And he he just was homed in on that line. He said, "That's that's the era." Right. Um, you know, you had people from the Navy base down there who were very conservative. Um, uh, you know, who said, uh, my God is not, my God's not dead, sorry about yours. Um, and then you have these little magical moments. There was a, down there by Garrison Bite, there was a little kind of a bait shop, you know. And I was in there, we'd all go in there and bullshit about our achievements. And <laughs> I was in there one day with all these other little rednecks and guys were fishing around there, standing there in the door the light in the door was blocked by this black guy. I think he'd had a few pops. He was about 6'4", 240 pounds. And he just stood there and he looked at all of us. And he goes, which of y'all is the grand wizard? <laughs> you you were ducking in the corner. <laughs> oh, not, not me. <laughs> Must be Jerry. He looked like a grand wizard to me. <laughs> I mean, what uh, I and I think it it came to a head possibly, as far as the chaos. You became a serious writer, then also all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you became Captain Berserko. Yeah. What what became of that transition? You didn't want to miss That's the party. To me. That's a great question. I probably don't have a good answer to it, but I had been such a hardworking young writer. My nickname was. When I was living in California and early in my Montana, just working all the time, my nickname was the White Knight. He's the guy who never does anything bad, does, does, never does anything wrong. And I just felt liberated when I got down there. And I just, I just was kind of running nuts, you know. Uh, and yeah, you, know, you felt uh, free. 
I felt free, but Buffett, who was definitely out there himself, uh, gave me the name Captain Berserko. And was there one moment that you earned that reputation? Well, I remember we had a club. We had this imaginary club called the Ma- Club Mandible. If you ever heard of that, yes, Club Mandible. We all had these bowling shirts with our names, so we always had to have it. <laughs> so I, he gave me the name Captain Berserko. But I remember. One night we were standing out. It's two o'clock in the morning. Said it was, we were, it was dark. We're looking up at the sky and we're completely fucked up, and and there's some kind of funny cloud going overhead. And Buffett goes, "My God, it's got a mandible." <laughs> I don't know where that came from. So and that was it. That was it. My God, and we would have our meetings at late at night at International House of Pancakes, you know, so we could move all the different colored serves around. <laughs> what? <laughs> what a great time. I think it uh, possibly culminated when you were directing, you know, the movie of uh, the, right. play, the, the, uh, the script you wrote, right. uh, or the book you wrote, 92 in the Shade. It was uh, Peter Fonda. Um, he played Tom Skelton, but also Margot Kidder and Elizabeth Ashley. And your wife at the time, Becky, ended up with Peter Fonda. I know. Now you're sleeping with Margot Kidder and Elizabeth, and they're both in the movie. Yeah. I think that was probably uh, about the culmination of the greatness. <laughs> well, it was... Or the, or it the was, great it was debauchery. Tip, it was a tipping point to go, let's, let's sort of get a grip, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but those were, that was a you know that was a very strange job to do that. I mean, because you'd never been a director before, and now you're directing. I didn't want your own to be movie. a director ever, and uh, I don't even go to the movies. And um, uh, the uh, the the producer had lined up Robert Altman to do it, and right. Altman and I traveled around. We did all this stuff, picking sites, we, all the kind of research work for a movie had been done with Altman and I wandering around. United Artists had uh, come up with a budget to make the movie. And um, uh, Altman and Kastner, the producer, had a big falling out. I mean, they were pretty close to uh, having blows. And um, Altman quit. And at that point, the the producer said, you know, we, we have the script, we've got the money, we got the thing. He said, you're the director. I said, what do you mean I'm the director? He said, you got to do it. He said, it has to happen. You've got to go down there and direct it. So I went down and directed it. And here's what I was paid. Miami crew per diem. I think I made $150 a week <laughs> to shoot that movie. Wow. And then I had to go to England and edit it. And I was working like a Georgia mule. I wasn't making chump change doing this thing. Um, but I kind of enjoyed it, you know. Uh, and the initial reviews, like the New York Times, were really good. And there was a little bit of a uproar about it. It never did very well. But it, there was a little bit of an uproar about it. And I and I got other other directing jobs offered to me. But I just didn't want to do it. I mean, I was very committed to what I was already doing before this huge interruption, and I wanted to go back to it, and that's what I've done ever since. Was there a point where you said to yourself, and when you looked in the mirror in the morning, did you ever think, like, this is getting a little busy? 
little busy. A little busy. Busy. Yeah, busy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I look back uh, uh, on especially the late 70s. I look at it as a period uh, where, uh, you know, I really th thought, am I losing my mind? You know, I just felt like it was a, uh, a trip into... Um, uh, mental illness is a little too strong, but it was clear clearly that I wasn't really, I wasn't really uh, thinking right anymore. Right. You know? um, and uh, it's amazing to me that I kept fishing, <laughs> but I I remember that was in the air. I remember going out uh, one time. I saw this guy. Uh, what was his name? He was a goner. Uh, he and his client had had. Uh, their boat was just kind of drifting and I went out there and he and his client had dropped acid and they had a big, they had a big box of uh, saltwater plugs and they go, they go like, yeah. Just and dangling they, them. <laughs> dangling plugs. Oh my God. I, I forget this guy. I'll think of it. I'm sure you knew him. He, uh, I, Isley? Isley? Something. Anyway, he was a complete wild man. He finally lost it. His wife was a, a bruja. She was a witch, you know, and and they, he finally completely lost it. He was a, he was a very good fisherman, and the, somebody ran into him again. He was at at uh, Wall Drug in South South Dakota, and he was dressed as an Indian, and he was supposed to not move. And these kids, <laughs> kids would go up to the cash register. <laughs> And buy a tomahawk and attack him, and that's what he was paid by the hour. Then he cleaned up and he got straight, and he went down to uh, Yucatan and he opened a little, what's been a pretty successful little fishing camp. Oh, good for him. Yeah. I've heard of Tom McGuane for decades, and I met him years ago during one of the many awards he's won. He's always inviting, friendly, and gracious, but still. I'm always a little nervous around him because he's Tom fucking McGuane. <laughs> One sitting is not enough for the size of his story. So look for part two in the upcoming weeks. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you want to see more content or behind the scenes, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We'll see you again soon. Just so right.